Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to see you here uh, this morning. Let's greet one another with waves. Holy waves. Those are good. So good to see you this morning. The first reading comes from Rosalia uh, de Castro, the poet. She wrote, I see my path, but I don't know where it leads. Not knowing where I'm going is what inspires me to travel it. Let's sing. Anybody think of a situation in which hindsight is not better than foresight? A situation in which hindsight is not a better confirmation of a decision made than foresight? Some of you are talking to yourselves. Uh, I've certainly heard all my life that hindsight is 2020. Is it? Is it always? You think I'm asking you a trick question, don't you? I, unless, I would say, unless there's something obstructing our vision, yeah, hindsight is always clearer than foresight. Thinking about new intimate relationships, maybe for you crazy lucky types, you only had one of those in your lifetime, and it's lasted for a lifetime. I'm very jealous of you. 
I may have had only one too. It's just that it didn't last very long. But anyway, that's another story. Um, if, you, if you just keep plowing ahead with some new venture in life and you never assess, which requires looking back to see where you started, what was the starting point? I have to look back to see where I started uh, in order to be able to assess where I'm going. Um, I, I, I have to look back. I have to, I have to engage myself in some hindsight. When I was pastor of a much larger congregation and had uh, many weddings going on, uh, therefore had a lot of pre and post marital counseling to do, I asked young couples whose weddings I performed to make an agreement with me that they would come back to talk to me kind of for a check-in after six months. And most did. There was no penalty if they didn't, but uh, most did. It was a formal way to kind of check in with somebody that they knew was on their team to see how they were doing. I also asked them to make a promise to me to uh, pull out their wedding vows and the message that I preached at their ceremony on their anniversary every year. Read through it together and see how they were doing. So I prepared almost all the weddings I ever did were custom made to the couple, if I knew the couple. Uh, so uh, that was another way for them to engage in some hindsight to see how they were doing and a kind of a kind of a vehicle to use specifically to assess. At the wedding, I promised you that I would do this, this, and this. How am I doing? Have I done that? Um, do I still make you feel like the most important person in the world to me? You have to be pretty gutsy to ask those questions, don't you? You might hear, mm, mm, I know you're trying, you know. <laughs> that would be a nice response from somebody who wasn't all that pleased with your, with your behavior. Parenthood, you know, you can't return the kid. Uh, I hope you have realized that there are some people who try to return the kids or who realize in the middle of the night, you know, six months in, that this is not what they thought parenthood was. Don't, don't know how they missed that. But, yeah, parents, uh, even before the children can give feedback, and the children will eventually give feedback, yeah, but even before the children can give feedback, parents need to stop and look back and ask, how am I doing? Am I the best parent I can be to this child at this point in time? And sometimes that's, that's painful, isn't it? Being the best possible parent isn't always a, isn't always a celebration. I really like Carol Burnett. I'll always love Carol Burnett. She's had some difficult times with her children. One, one has died. Uh, I think it was a brain tumor. Another one has had an ongoing struggle with substance abuse. Uh, and recently, Carol Burnett and her husband uh, took legal action to take custody of the grandchild because uh, 
the mother, Carol's daughter, uh, was not making responsible decisions, they thought, for the child. And in an interview, she said, sometimes you have to love your children enough to let them hate you. Ever been there? I've been there. Fortunately, it didn't last very long, but I am quite certain that my children have hated me for longer or shorter periods of time uh, because of decisions I felt that I had to make, or sometimes because of my simple lack of knowledge. New job? What about a new job? Uh, most of us are in jobs now where a review is built into the job, so we get feedback, right? We didn't know what we were doing when we got into the job, even if we were trained for the skill. But how are we performing that skill in the job? Well, a supervisor is going to tell us at an annual review. Uh, while I was working for, as long as I did at Palmer Seminary, I was distinctly a part-time person. I never had a full-time role there. And everybody knew that until a new dean came in. We had a new dean. I want you to cut this out of the film, please, because uh, he might listen. Um, I'm not embarrassed. I've said this to his face. I just don't want, you know, actually, I don't care. But I, uh, Part-time people didn't have annual reviews. Students did evaluations after the courses. They were harsh enough. <laughs> Kevin shaking his head. <laughs> Any of you ever run across the website ratemyprofessor.com? Oh my God. Um, students are never lukewarm. They either loved you or hated you. And when I was first started, when I first started teaching at Wilmington, I didn't even know about it. And I found the first time I looked at it, I was thrilled because a student had written, Dr. Farmer is God. I'm like, well, of course. <laughs> Why hadn't I noticed that, you know? Uh, but the next time I looked at it, the student had said, farmer is a part of the anatomy uh, and uh, an arrogant one. And um, another one said, farmer actually expects you to read the assignments. Don't take him and things like that. And I would get irritated. So Carson was still living at home at that time. And we made an agreement. Carson would read those. And then he would tell me what he thought I needed to know. So if after the reviews came out, I did well, Carson would say, you go, Dad. If a student was taking me through the swamp, Carson would say, hey, we should go, we should go for dinner, Dad, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, but this dean... Uh, thought I should have a full review like a full-time person. And I said, if you want to pay me like a full-time person, I'm willing to drive up there an extra day so you can do a review. Um, but I'm not coming for you to do a review of a part-time person that I've never had in 15 years. He didn't like me, by the way, and the feeling was mutual. Uh, and I never went for his reviews. I, uh, I would not. Uh, but when you're working full time for somebody, a review is important. It's very important to give feedback. Pastor Staff Relations Committee here, uh, uh, for most of my years here, 
had, had the chairperson meet with me to give me feedback. You know, <laughs> as if people here held back their feelings throughout the year. But anyway, no, that was an important thing to get feedback I might not have heard from except one year there was a person in the chair who couldn't think of anything negative to say about me so she went through the congregation and asked people specifically what are the negative things you can say about David and so when I met with her for my review that's what she sat there and read all my negative traits that she had gathered in interviews uh, boy there were a lot of them too I was really stunned about uh, just about every little thing. You joined a new organization. Is this new organization? You, you joined it in anticipation of certain things. Is it meeting your needs? Is it worth your time? Uh, or not? Uh, you've got a new therapist. A lot of people think whoever they get as a new therapist, that that's somehow arranged by God and that you're, that's exactly the person you should stay with for the rest of your life. No! No, no, no. You should, you should decide in the first session or two if, there is a, if there's a connection. If you don't have a good connection with your therapist, the therapist is not going to be able to help you. Right? And it doesn't mean the therapist is going to say everything and make you feel all uh, giggly inside. The therapist may say some things that uh, disturb you from time to time. She or he is being honest. But is there a connection? Do you trust the person? Do you feel comfortable in the person's presence? If not, then you need to find uh, someone else. And I think it's not an easy thing uh, to, find, uh, to find that. A lot of people live as if they can get through life uh, without having to launch out into utter newness very often. They live as if they can sort of structure their lives uh, so that not much new creeps into the way that they have to live. And yet, the reality is, new ventures creep into our lives all the time, whether we anticipate it, whether we resist it, or not. And so, this new sermon series that starts today on significant life journeys. I'm starting with this particular theme today. All the time, challenges, opportunities, responsibilities come into our lives and cause us to have to step into something unknown. A new place to live, a new series of medical treatments, a new relationship, a new responsibility in the church. Always new responsibilities come along that bring us into pathways we have never traveled before. And that becomes a life responsibility. And if we do it well, a life skill.
Thank you, Susan. Ms. Melissa? Second reading today is actually two readings. Um, first, from Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 8, and then a single verse from the 11th chapter of the New Testament book of uh, Hebrews. First, from Genesis. Now, the Lord said to Abram, his name hadn't yet been changed to Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow, what a deal. Hmm? So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was not a spring chicken. That's not what the Hebrew says, but... He was 75 years old, although that wasn't that old back then, because you might live to be 150. Um, 75 years old when he departed from Haran. <clears throat> he also took his wife. It's interesting that the writer tells us he took his nephew before he mentions his wife. But anyway, he took Sarai. Her name hadn't yet been changed to Sarah. Sarai and Lot. We already know he took Lot. And all the possessions they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, i.e. their slaves. Hmm. They set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place called Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's probably why they called it the land of Canaan, huh? And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land, this land where the Canaanites are living. Which is one of the reasons we're having horrible problems still between Israel and Palestine. This, these very things. These very things I'm reading. But anyway, the story says that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land that the Canaanites are living in. And so Abram built an altar to the Lord there who had appeared to him. And from there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built another altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And now from the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, writer of Hebrews, uh, looks back as the name had changed. Not Abram, but Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he set out, listen to this last phrase, not knowing where he was going. Hmm? Let's sing.
Please be seated. Abram, later Abraham, was kind of an all-or-nothing guy. And so when he felt that God was calling him or leading him to go from one place to some other place, even though that place was unknown to him, he didn't go to test it out. He packed up everything, his whole family and all of his possessions, his whole household. He packed it all up and they all <laughs> had to go with him. They didn't have a choice. Maybe the, maybe the nephew had a choice. And the rest of them didn't have a choice. Later, because at this point in time, Abram and Sarai were childless, much later in life, Sarah, after the name change, would finally be able to become pregnant and they had a child. And when he was about 12 years old, Abram, Abraham thought God was calling him to, to sacrifice that child to prove his faithfulness to God. Remember, he was whole hog, so he prepared to offer his only son as a sacrifice. Hmm? Which I think is one of the most horrendous stories in all of Scripture. Nor do I think that God would actually ask anyone to offer a child or any human being as a sacrifice. But that's how the story goes. And if you read scripture literally and assume that there is a literal message there for you, then you're going to be in deep water trying to figure out why God, although it turned out to be a test, but you're going to have difficulty trying to figure out how God would, would give somebody the gift of a child and then turn around and say, yeah, let's see how much you really love me. Hmm? So here they are, back to Abram and Sarai, traveling, and they get notice of two places, and after that, nothing. Just go. Which is why the writer of Hebrews in the famous... Chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame features Abraham. <laughs> what kind of faith? That he would sense that God was leading him to a place and he had to leave where he was and move, even though he didn't know where his destination was. And that sounds amazing, and it was amazing. You've done that in your life. You've stepped into a whole bunch of situations where you knew 
that that was the place to start, but you had no idea what was going to unfold. And look at you. You made it. Sometimes with a few bruises. Sometimes with a little confusion. Most often with a lot of wisdom. Some of you voted a little over 21 years ago to call a new pastor by the name of David Farmer. That was a journey. You had no idea what you were getting yourself into. Not really. No testimonies. Thank you very much. Some of you got ahead of the pastor search committee and sent spies down to Baltimore to watch me preach and hear me preach before you were supposed to. So there's this formality in the pastor search process. It's supposed to be kind of secretive. Although in a small church, it's rarely secretive. But you're not supposed to go and hear the candidate preach until the pastor search committee has made its decision and made a recommendation to the church. I had talked to the pastor search committee on the telephone, but hadn't met any of them, didn't know what they looked like. And one Sunday, three uh, very well-dressed gentlemen who happened to have been Charlie Wiswold, Doug Stewart, and Jeff Anderson came in all wearing secret service suits, which was definitely out of place at University Baptist Church in the summer. And boy, here too. Yeah, right. Uh, and one of my church members, though she was in her 70s by then was a preacher's kid and you never get over being a preacher's kid and after church she said David Farmer don't you dare leave us I'm like I'm, I'm not planning to leave you she goes don't you lie to me there was a pastor search committee here today I said there was not a pastor search committee here today she said I can recognize the pastor search committee 20 miles down the road because I knew when they came we were having to pack up and I said, there was no search committee here today. I would, I would tell you, since you cornered me, um, she goes, well, there was. Three men dressed in navy blue suits sitting kind of apart from each other as if they didn't, if, as if they weren't a matching set, please. <laughs> so I called Charlie when I got home, which was the only number I had, and I said, there's this lady in my church who thinks there was a search committee already coming to listen to me today and we've only had four conversations or something he goes yeah there were three of us i'm like what well, should, should you not have told me I said oh we didn't want you to know we were there we wanted you to act just like you normally do and i said i always act like i normally do but whatever well that didn't stop but didn't stop with that other spies came there too <laughs> um, uh, the Warwicks and the Grants who else any other spies here who will identify themselves yeah well anyway 21 years ago you voted and here we all are both of us were starting down a pathway we didn't know where we would be for several reasons, one of which was we didn't know what the world would toss our way in 21 years. We didn't know what the, we didn't know what society would ask of churches in general in 21 years. 
We didn't know who we would gain in our membership and who we would lose. We've lost pillar after pillar after pillar in 21 years here. <clears throat> I buried foundation stones of this church that I didn't think we could live without. And here we are. When we travel these journeys to unknown destinations, survival is the only real rule. Honoring God, of course. Surviving while honoring God. And that's it. We have to put aside sometimes cherished notions. We have to put aside lots of preferences. Some of the stuff we packed up to bring with us, like Abraham, since we packed up the whole house. We find out we don't need. We find out we can't even travel well with it, so we have to lighten the load. The things we need as we move ahead are not the things we needed when we were settled-ish back at the starting point. Life changes. And the constant, which isn't tangible, is the lure of God. What we have to rely on every day is the assurance that God, though we can't always zoom in clearly on the lure of God, but the, the assurance we have is that God is luring us to some better place for a specific reason. God doesn't ask us to go and move just for the heck of it. We start out on these journeys not knowing where we're going because God thinks there's a place we need to be. Of course, I'm anthropomorphizing God, you realize. But God is pulling us to a place where life is better for our gift set or for us in terms of our growth and our contributions. Doesn't mean it's going to be easier there. It means we are going to be more appropriately placed for living out all that God has for us with a particular gift set we have. I've learned a lot in 21 years here. Some were happy lessons, some were sad lessons, some were frustrating lessons, some were challenging. Did I mention challenging? Bill Westerhoff told me I didn't need to preach with as many notes as I was preaching with. I thought I did. Old dogs learning new tricks, huh? It's better preaching, I think. Are you, am I? Absolutely. Thank you, sir, for the testimony. Thank you for the testimony. Love those kinds of testimonies. Um, but yes, um, it goes without saying, although I'm going to say it, that change is woven into this life. 
this life of going without knowing where we're going, but traveling on this journey. Change is a part of daily life. Looking back to the past is a check on how we're doing. And if we're moving correctly forward and not circling back <laughs> to repeat the same, the same pathways and just going in circles. When the interstate system was first built through Knoxville, my mom <laughs> could not figure out how to exit the interstate. <laughs> she could get on the interstate, <laughs> but, but the get-off ramps confused her. <laughs> so once we were on the interstate, we were pretty much going to stay on the interstate for a really long time, even though we didn't have that much interstate in Knoxville for a while. But mother could not figure out the get-off ramp, so we just laughed. My sister and I just laughed. Um, but some people travel through life like that. They're going and not knowing, but they're not taking time to check their progress. So in reality, they're not moving ahead. They're going in circles. We're just repeating the same old things. And therefore, not moving ahead. Promise you this. When God lures us, and that's my favorite verb for how God relates to us, lure. When God lures us to move into something unknown. It is absolutely for the purpose of something better. And so we listen. And so we pack up. And so we move out. As we um, pray today, I'm happy to say we continue to have no one hospitalized, though we do have some members who have treatments upcoming. Um, and because you're a world community-focused congregation, you don't just think about what's going on in Wilmington, although we have our share of concerns in Wilmington. So last I heard, the three policemen who were shot downtown are doing okay. Is that still true? Yes. We have our concerns here. But you're a worldview congregation. And so, when you pray, you think of the whole human family. Not just what's going on at your house or your church or your city, but the whole human family, which is really the only way to pray because we're all interconnected. We're connected even to the people we don't like. Hate that, but it's true.
May we pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning for those amazing pioneers, those brave women and men who set an example for us of heading out, responding to your lure. not knowing where the destination was to be. But having confidence in your love, and in your desire that all people experience life in the greatest fullness possible. <clears throat> we would also, as we think about these journeys that are before us, gracious God, not allow ourselves to become distracted from places to which we've already been led that need our attention, lessons we've already learned about tasks in which we need to involve ourselves in terms of service to people who are in need, in terms of making a contribution to make the world a better place even though we are just one small community. We will not use our travel time spiritually as an excuse for neglecting the vital ministries that must be taken care of wherever we find ourselves. And we recommit ourselves, each of us, this, this day, gracious God, to be courageous and grateful travelers on the journeys with destinations toward which you are luring us. Even though, at the beginning, we only know that it's time to start. Not how long the journey will take, or exactly where it will lead. And as always, Jesus is our remarkable example. Amen. Our third reading this morning is from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. This is a well-known uh, statement that he made, but very memorable and very important. Faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase.
obviously. So heading out into an unknown future is both terrifying and exhilarating. Should be. Back to our first reading, Rosalia de Castro found the unknown the most compelling reason to head out on a journey. She apparently thought that heading out on places she had already been many times and already knew about wasn't all that interesting. Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, has always captivated me uh, from the time I was first introduced to it in elementary school. Yeah. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and after much pondering, you know, the poet chose the road less traveled. And he sums up by saying, that has made all the difference. I once heard Frost interviewed, and someone asked him, what were these two roads? He goes, I don't know. It was a poem. I was disappointed, yeah. But what do you think he meant about taking the road less traveled, make, making all the difference? That could be a good essay question, huh? Heading out into an unknown future requires the use of skills we've amassed to date and skills that uh, will have to be developed as we adapt to each unexpected step. Even if we were completely equipped to deal with life as we lived it in our place of comfort up until this lure from God came along, I can guarantee you that we're not fully equipped to deal with life in the new place. New skills are going to have to be learned. Just goes with the territory. That shouldn't put us off or frighten us at all. A Turkish playwright named Mehmet Murat Ildan said this, a journey to the unknown shores needs a port, a ship, a wind, but more important than all of them, courage. Courage to leave the known for the unknown. And finally this morning, heading out into an unknown future is the most satisfying and, or is most satisfying and successfully accomplished when relying both on the lure of God and our willingness to look back rather than forward for the confirmation we need that we're heading in the right direction. Divine GPS, three components. God, pragmatics, and self. Feel free to put that on your bumper. God, when the Hebrews were traveling through the very wilderness trying to find their way to the land that they thought that God had promised them 
They needed all the reminders of God's presence they could get. And even the ones that they got weren't enough, but frequently they thought that God made God's self known during the daytime by appearing in a pillar of cloud and at nighttime, a pillar of fire to assure them that they were moving in the right direction. Pragmatics are a part of life and they change with the times and with the circumstances. But when we undertake something spiritual, that doesn't mean that we're ruling out the pragmatics of life, how we travel, uh, what we do about what we learn, and so forth, and self. The idea that anything about spirituality is passive, and that we're just supposed to sit back and let God do all the work, and we just kind of uh, join in uh, when... Uh, prompted is nonsense. We are the primary actors in the process. God is luring us to make the journey. Us. Why us? Why bother luring us to make a journey to some unknown place? To some new place? To some new responsibility? Why us? I don't know how many students, a few hundred, I would guess, through the years of teaching preaching, of students who were saying, I feel called to preach, but I sure don't know why. Sometimes after I heard their first sermon, I wondered why myself. But that was my job. If you feel called to preach, we're going to teach you how. Hmm? But I would say to the student, if God is calling you to preach, God is calling you to share the good news, there's some reason God is calling you to do it instead of the people who aren't doing it. You. The self is the key component in the process. You. You're called to take the journey. This journey is your journey. It's not your neighbor's journey. This journey is this church's journey. <clears throat> Not the church down the road. The self is the key component. God is luring you if this is your journey. Because you are vital to what God envisions in the place to which God is luring you. Not just anybody can do the job that needs to be done. My grandparents, at retirement, went on a short-term volunteer mission assignment to Mali, West Africa. My grandmother was a nurse. Grandfather was a maintenance man. Through an organization called United World Mission, they found out that there was a place in Mali, in the Mali area, that had no medical professionals. And this is 
50 years ago. It was a place in Mali that had no medical professionals within 200 miles. None. And she, Mimi, we called her Mimi, felt lured. Poppy, not so much, <laughs> but he loved her and was going wherever she was going. And so at probably about my age, mid-ish 60s, in order to do this, this wasn't like the Southern Baptist or the American Baptist foreign mission societies. She had to raise her own support. She had to pack barrel after barrel of supplies because she wasn't going to be able to come back for two years. It was a two-year minimum assignment. And because she was going to need to travel when she got there, she had to purchase and learn to ride a motor scooter. So when I was 16 years old, I was out watching my grandmother outdo me on a motor scooter. She did it. Changed her life, changed our lives. And the number of lives that she touched by going into places, she didn't speak the language, she, she spoke nothing but English. Going into places, doing the best that she could with language and and offering what medical care she could though she was not a physician, changed lives. She did it. A lot of times, highly responsible people like you imagine that as you age, you don't have much to offer anymore especially in comparison to what you have been able to offer up to this point in your life. That's not true. That is not true. God is still luring. Right up until the time that you slip out of this world and into God's more intimate embrace. Amen.
be seated. Again, I'm so glad you're here today. Bow your heads down for the benediction and the blessing. Let's go from this place today into the journey, the unknown journey of this week. Amen.